Recently, I, I went uh, to Amazon.com, and uh, as probably many of you did this holiday season, uh, but I looked for something specific. Uh, I often like to buy books from Amazon because they're just cheaper, and with Prime, I get them in two days, and it saves me the hassle of going to Barnes & Noble and paying sales tax, and Barnes & Noble doesn't like that, but Amazon loves my business. And Amazon has listed on its website some 4,000-plus books about church growth and church growth strategies. That's a lot. You think that's a lot. Christianbook.com, a Christian book uh, uh, website and and purveyor, has over 4,700 books. 4,700 books about church growth, how to grow a church, how to build a church, how to make it bigger, how to make it better, how to get more people in the seats. Lifeway.com. Lifeway is the uh, publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. They have on their website over 700 books about church growth. Mercy. How, how in the world then are we who are believers in church, pastors, other leaders in the church, Sunday school teachers, other things, how are we then to know which of these books are good and which are not? You've got to filter through, you know, 4,000 books to decide which ones are going to help me build a bigger church or build a church better or grow a church the right way or the best way. That's a lot of stuff to have to filter through. Wouldn't it have been nice if God would have just told us his strategy for church growth? And, and wouldn't it have been nice if he had just put it in a convenient place that all of us, a book that all of us already own and, and likely have sitting on a shelf or under a chair in front of you this morning? The good news is God has done that for us already. And in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, I think we have God's definition and even God's strategy for church growth, for godly, biblical church growth. And as we'll see in these verses this morning, God's definition of church growth has far less to do with the quantity of people in seats in a church building and much more to do with the Christ-likeness of the people in those seats. In order to achieve godly church growth then, God has gifted the church with called and empowered people to lead the church into the Christ-likeness that he has planned for her. He's also given us some goals to look at and to pursue and to strive after as a church. And he's even given us results to shoot for, things that we should expect to see as we are following his strategy, his plan, his outline for church growth. Having said that, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. For those of you unfamiliar with the book of Ephesians, this is Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was a strange city, um, uh, kind of like a a modern hybrid between San Francisco and New York. It sat on a a popular, uh, uh, it was a port city, and so there were many ships and other traders and stuff that would come through. And so very metropolitan, very cosmopolitan, um, also very pagan. Uh, One of the seven ancient wonders, seven wonders of the ancient world, which is the temple to the uh, goddess Diana was there in Ephesus. And so there was a lot of uh, just pagan worship in that city. Paul spent quite a bit of time in Ephesus, several years there, uh, to build the church, planting the church there, discipling uh, people to lead the church. Timothy, uh, to which we have the two letters, first and second Timothy, uh, that young man, that pastor lived and pastored in Ephesus, uh, coordinating other pastors of small churches there in the city. And so to the church in Ephesus, Paul writes this in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. And he, that is Christ, 
gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, or as I prefer to translate that, the shepherd teachers, and we'll talk about that in a moment, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May God add blessing to the reading of His Word. Well, I said God gives gifts to the church. He gives goals for the church for growth. And He also gives results of uh, biblical church growth that we can see here in these verses. So first, in verses 11 and 12, let's look at God's gifts for church growth. Here, verse 11, right? Uh, Paul says, He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers, or shepherd teachers. Here, Paul is speaking of Christ, who in the verses before has spoken about Christ, who has died for our sins, who has been raised from the dead, who has ascended into heaven. And having ascended to heaven, he has given gifts to the church for the church's good in the time between Christ's ascension and his second coming. So in this church age, this time between when Christ has ascended to heaven and before his second coming, when the church is to be doing the work of the ministry that Christ has called it to do, right? Christ has, even in his absence, his physical absence, given us gifts, right? Things to, to help us in the task that he's given to us. And among these gifts are the Holy Spirit. Certainly, we know that and we see that in the early part of the book of Acts, the gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out on all believers. It is God's own Spirit, the person of God, the Holy Spirit living in us. But He's also given other various gifts that the Holy Spirit empowers us with. And we see lists of those spiritual gifts in places like 1 Corinthians 12. You can go look at that later on this week. A long list of of gifts that that the Spirit uh, gives to believers. But here... Paul is speaking specifically, not not of spiritual gifts that every believer has and is called to exercise, but but the gifts of people, not gifts of service, not gifts of, of attitude, not gifts of generosity or things like that, but people. The gifts Paul talks about here are people for the growth of, growth of the church. And of these gifts, which are people, there are two kinds. First, there are gifts for a special time or gifts for a specific time. Time And this specific time is the early church, like the first century of the church. Okay? Uh, these are the first two that we see are gifts that I, that I do not believe God continues to give to the church because he's given us something even better. And we'll talk about that in a moment. First, the first of these gifts for a special time are apostles. That word apostle literally, literally means the sent out ones, those who are sent out. Most of the time in the New Testament, that word apostle is referred is used to refer to those who had witnessed Christ. They were eyewitnesses to Jesus. Among them are the, the 12 disciples minus Judas, plus Paul and Matthias. Uh, Barnabas is even called an apostle in some places in Acts, although he was never an eyewitness to Christ. Silas and Timothy also called apostles, but they were not eyewitnesses of Jesus, although they were closely working with others. What we see in the New Testament of these apostles is that they are regularly attested by, right? We, we know someone is an apostle in the New Testament by signs and wonders and miracles that they perform, as Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. 
Paul says the, the signs of an apostle were performed among you and you saw what they were. Right? So uh, that is that God sent out, chose these ones who were eyewitnesses to Christ, who followed Jesus, who were specifically chosen to be the sort of the, the, the cutting edge, the tip of the spear of the church, if you will. And as they went with the gospel, he gave them uh, particular gifts like gifts of healing and even of prophecy and things like that. So that the word of the gospel might be attested by the works of power that come along with it. Right? It's sort of a, uh, uh, an edifying uh, sort of sign that comes along with the gospel. And the signs are not what are or what are important. The gospel itself is what is most important among what the apostles did. But they were tested by these signs and wonders. Even that word apostle is, is not used. The, part of the reason I, I believe that, it is, that, that the gift of apostle, the office of apostle has died out, is, is no longer among us, one that we see in the church, is because even in the book of Acts, uh, after Acts chapter 16, verse 4, the word apostle is not even used anymore. We see it used very rarely. So because it was used primarily for those who are eyewitnesses to Christ, we don't have any more of those. None of us have been eyewitnesses to Christ. Okay, uh, and because it comes with spe- uh, specific sort of works, uh, 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 defining works and signs, wonders, miracles that come along with them, uh, we don't see those things too often anymore. This is a sign or the gift that is for a, a special time. The second of the gifts that is for a special time or specific time for church growth are the prophets. It says he gave the apostles and the prophets, evangelists and shepherd teachers. Prophets very plainly are spokesmen or spokespersons for God. They reveal some message from the Lord to people. In the Old Testament, there are lots of prophets. They're all over the place. Um, there's you know, some 17 different books that, uh, that are attributed to prophets to their, and to their prophecies, the words that God had given them. Prophets do two different kinds of prophesying, though. On the one hand, they do foretelling, which is they, they predict or give a message about what is going to happen, something in the future. But they also do what is called forthtelling, which is telling people what God has already said and applying it specifically to their lives. We see both of those, foretelling and forthtelling, in the prophets of the Old Testament. We also see foretelling and forthtelling of prophets even in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11, we, we have uh, examples of those there. And when the prophets speak, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament... What they're doing is either revealing new information from God or clearing up information that God has already given, right? Or or applying it specifically to a particular group of people. Likely, the gift of prophecy continued as the New Testament was being composed and canonized in the early uh, decades of the church, but then tapered off as the authority of the New Testament was recognized by the church, right? So, apostles and prophets who are the the two gifts for a special time, which we don't necessarily recognize today. uh, Well, in some circles, some churches do, but but most Baptist churches do not. I personally do not, and here's why. Because they were, so apostles apostles were attested by uh, special signs and wonders that that were seen that came along with their teaching. Well, their teaching was somewhat new because they're preaching the gospel for the first time. The New Testament had not been composed yet. In fact, the New Testament was being composed as they were apostling, if you will. And at the same time, the prophets who are giving new information or, or revealing, forthtelling or foretelling information things, giving a message from God to the people, to the church in the New Testament, they are also doing so while the New Testament is not yet constructed, but being constructed. However, by the end of the first century, by, by about 100 A.D., the whole New Testament has been written. 
And most churches by that time had, had been using the majority of what we know as the New Testament as an authoritative uh, revelation from God alongside the Old Testament. And so now, by the end of the first century, we have not new information coming from God, but attested, confirmed, affirmed by signs and wonders, a message from God in the New Testament. And so once that work of the New Testament and, and its construction and canonization is complete, those specific gifts, apostles and prophets, begin to taper off and die out as the apostles die out and the, those prophets die out. Why? Because God has already affirmed his word through them and their signs. And now we don't need apostles. We don't need prophets. We have God's word and the Holy Spirit living in us. Interestingly enough, in the, New Testament, in the New Testament, the majority of the time that the word prophet is used or the word prophets are used is actually a reference to Old Testament prophets, not to prophets in their own day. Old Testament prophets who themselves were confirmed by their prophecies having come true, either in their own day or being fulfilled in Christ, who were affirmed and confirmed by the hand of God on them through wonders and miracles as well, although not all of them. What is important about prophets, even in the New Testament, though, is that they were not their own standard for true prophecy, right? Even John himself in 1 John 4, 1, we were in 1 John last week, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 29 through 32, both of these two apostles tell the church, test the prophets, right? If somebody comes into your body and he's saying that he's speaking from the Lord, test the man, Right? Check that what he's saying is actually true and is actually in line with what God has said. So even in the New Testament times when prophecy was a gift, when prophets were a gift to the church, uh, even they were, were subject to what God had already said. And so nowadays I would caution you if somebody comes to you and they say that they have the gift of prophecy, which, by the way, I, I knew a person who said that she had such a gift. Uh, I think she just had the gift of criticism and, uh, and judgment, but she called it prophecy. If they say that they have the gift of prophecy, right, test what they say against God's word. And if they're saying something new that is not in line with what God has already said or something new that is not clearly in Scripture, question that prophet. Prophet, in air quotes. So God gives gifts for a specific time, the apostles and the prophets, specifically for the time when the church is growing and the gospel is moving out in the world while the New Testament, while God's word is being uh, constructed and canonized, being, uh, being made authoritative in the life of the church. But then God also gives two gifts for all time. So there's two gifts for a specific time and then two gifts for all time. And the next two are gifts, are gifts of people that have been in the church since its inception, since Christ's ascension, and will continue to be a part of the church until Christ comes again. The first of these are evangelists. That word evangelist is a, uh, is a play on the Greek word for gospel. The Greek word for gospel is uh, euangelion. Uh, to preach the gospel, to evangelize is the Greek word euangelio. And uh, an evangelist is a euangelist, okay? One who, who gospels, one who good news is, one who goes out with the good news of Jesus, with the gospel of Jesus. In the New Testament, these are those who traveled proclaiming the gospel, calling people to repentance and planting churches. Paul was an apostle, but he's also an evangelist. Timothy was a pastor, a, a shepherd called to lead the church in Ephesus. But Paul tells him, do the work of an evangelist, right? Tell the gospel, proclaim the gospel. But there are some people, some believers, whom God has specifically gifted and specially gifted with this, 
to proclaim the gospel to people in such a compelling way, to call them to make a decision for Christ in such a way that is, that, that is just remarkable and, and can only be attributed to God. Two of, of such persons in history that I can think of, one is George Whitfield, who during the Great Awakening in the 1700s in America was preaching all over the, 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 uh, all over the colonies in that day. And people in droves were coming to faith in Christ because of this man's ability to proclaim the gospel and call people to make a decision for it. Another more modern contemporary example is Billy Graham, who took the world by storm in the, the early and mid-1900s, even into the later 1900s. Men who are just gifted by God with this ability to preach the gospel and to draw people into a relationship with Christ. Many people would look, you might look around at the church today and you see people, maybe even in our church today, who are just gifted that way. There's people that, that just are always talking about Jesus, always talking about the gospel and calling people to make a decision for Christ, to, to trust in Christ for the first time, for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. There's just, there are people in churches that are gifted that way, that God has just given that gift to. But there are also people that, that are out planting churches that are gifted in this way. Look at many of our international and even North American uh, missionaries who are serving around the world and, and in North America. Uh, who are planting churches, who are proclaiming the gospel and bringing people into a new relationship with Christ. Right? We, just, we see that all over. So evangelists were present in the New Testament, and they're also present even today. They're first of the two gifts for all time. But here's the second. The second of the two gifts for all time, for God's strategy, God's plan for church growth, are these shepherd teachers. Now, in most of your translations, you probably have shepherds and teachers. But I don't think these are two different offices or two different gifts. I think they're actually one. And, and that is by the, the, the usage of specific conjunctions that Paul uses in the original Greek. Okay? In our language today, in, in English, we have uh, two basic conjunctions that we use most of the time. And and but. Okay? And, and they're just words that, con, that, that join uh, you know, clauses together in any sentence that we use. But in Greek, there were two, uh, two also other uh, uh, conjunctions that they commonly used. One is, is de, and the other is kai. And they can be used differently. And Paul, before each office, each gift that he lists here, he uses the conjunction de. But between shepherds and teachers, he uses the conjunction kai. So, for instance, it would read something like this. And he gave the apostles... Uh, and de the prophets, and de the evangelists, and de shepherds, chi teachers. And so when used that way, when a conjunction appears, uh, a different conjunction appears kind of out of place or out of nowhere uh, like that, sometimes in the Greek language, it functions not as a conjunction, but like as a hyphen, right? Joining those two words together uh, into one term. And most commentators agree that Paul is here referring to not shepherds and teachers, but one office, one gift, one person who is a shepherd teacher. Okay? Here it seems that Paul is, is certainly, I think, most likely referring to what will be called later the office of pastor. There are three words that are used for the office of pastor in the New Testament. Pastor, elder, and overseer. Or that word pastor can also be translated shepherd. Shepherd, elder, overseer. And they're all used uh, uh, synonymously throughout the New Testament. Okay? And here he is saying shepherds and teachers, pastor teachers. We know from these places in the New Testament where elder, pastor, and overseer are used interchangeably that the office of pastor is instructed by God to be filled by, from places like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 2, filled by godly men in the church, but this does not necessarily preclude women from being able to teach and to serve in the church. Okay? In, in fact, in Titus chapter 2, 
There's much to say about the role of godly and gifted women in the church, teaching and discipling other uh, younger and spiritually less mature women in the church. In this way, women gifted for teaching in the church are a gift of God to the church and to the women of the church. And by their godly, Christ-centered teaching of other women, a blessing to the men and children of the church as well. All right, so God gifts the church with women who are able to teach, not, not called to be pastors, but who are able to teach for the purpose of teaching and instructing other women, growing other women in the faith, teaching their children, so that by their investment in the lives of other women in the church, that those women might be blessed, their children might be blessed, and that their husbands might be blessed as a result as well. And in so doing, the whole church is, is blessed by the godly service of teaching of, of those women that are called and gifted to teach others in the church. But here in this specific place in Ephesians chapter 4, I think Paul is talking specifically about shepherd teachers, I mean one term, uh, referring to the office of pastor, the gift of pastor to the church. In this way, all of the offices then, elder, pastor, overseer, deacon, even the apostle, even the office, uh, apostle was an office in the New Testament, all of the offices are gifts of God to the church. But not all of the gifts are offices. Does that make sense? There's no office of evangelist in the church. It's just a gift of you know, gifted people that God gives to the church for its growth. So all, off, all offices are gifts, but not all gifts are offices. And for more on the office of pastor and what he's called to do and, and how he's called to live that out, you can look at places like 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 8, Titus 1, verses 5 through 9, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. As we look at and see from these two verses, or specifically verse 11, that God gives the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers for the church. We need to, in the life of our church then, in the life of every church, recognize, support, and enable those that God has given to equip the church. We'll look at this here in in, in just a little bit uh, more in a moment. But verse 12, right? God gives these gifts of people to the church to equip them for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. These are God's gift of people to the church to equip the church for what they are called to do. And so since we know that these people are God's gift to our church, what we need to do is recognize it when God has gifted us with them, support those that God has gifted to equip us in this way, and enable those that God is calling or may be calling to be a gift to the church in this way. For instance, we have young men in our church and will likely have other young men and even young women who God is calling into ministry in a specific way. We have young men in our church who are called to vocational pastoral ministry and have expressed that call. How are we as a church, not just as, as pastors and staff, but as a body, how are we recognizing those young men? How are we supporting them? How are we enabling them to be the gift that God has chosen to make them to the church for its equipping? That's a serious question. Are we, are we looking to the looking for and trying to equip and help the next generation of Christian leaders in the church? And if we're not, God help us. If we're not equipping and, and focusing on supporting the next generation of Christian leaders, how in the world will the church be led? There are young women who are called to the mission field or called to even to, to teach, right? Other, other women to be evangelists. Right. Called to even young women, called to go to seminary, to be prepared for a life of service and ministry, whatever way that God might call them to do. How are we supporting those young women? Older, older ladies, more mature ladies in the church. How are we coming al- alongside those young women to show them what godly women look like 
how godly women live, how they, how they work, how they serve the church, serve their families, right? serve the unity of the body. The future of the church is in the hands of its youth. And we do, we do well to ask ourselves how well we are involved in recognizing, supporting, and equipping those who will give their lives to equip the church in future generations. We do well to ask ourselves that question regularly. Now, young man, young woman, you who may be called into ministry or sensing that God is calling you to ministry, maybe you're not a young man or a young woman, maybe you're an old man or an older woman, right? That God is now calling you in your later age to be a gift to the church in this way, right? Just because God says that you and and has called you and equipped you to be a gift to the church, you are not God's gift to the church, if you know what I mean. There are some pastors, there are some teachers, there are some missionaries and church planters who think they are God's gift to the church, right? And in one sense, they are, absolutely. Ephesians 4 tells us that they are God's gift to the church, for the church. But they're not God's gift to the church for their own glory. They're not God's gift to the church for their own advancement. They're not God's gift to the church for their own popularity. If you want to know, young men, what it's like to be a pastor, turn to 1 Timothy 4. Verse 12, this is what Paul says to a young pastor. He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but in your youth, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Young man called to the ministry, you think you're a gift of God to the church? This is how God wants you to be a gift, to set an example for the body in these ways, right? In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Think you're called to lead the church, to teach the church, to shepherd the flock? Take heed of what Peter says to the elders that are in the churches that, that he is writing to. First Peter 5, verses 1 and following. He says, I exhort the elders, right? That's a synonymous word for pastor. Among you, as fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd comes, speaking of Christ, when he appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You who are called to ministry, called to serve the church, to equip the church for the work of ministry that we're going to look at here in just a moment. Understand that when, especially young men called to pastoral ministry, when God is calling you to this, this is what he's calling you to. Not to, not to have a platform for whatever you want to say, Not to be the most popular guy in a certain city because you're such a great teacher or whatever the case may be. He's calling you to give up your life for other sinful people who need you to help equip them for the work of ministry. He's calling you to die on the altar of service to God daily in study of the word, in prayer, in hospital visits, at bedsides of those who are dying on, in phone conversations with those whose marriages are crumbling, and you will at every turn feel inadequate for the task that God has called you to. But if you, if you, I promise it's true, if you seek to fulfill what, and to steward the gift that God has given you and the gift that God has called you to, if you strive to steward it well, right, by giving up yourself regularly for those that God has called you to lead, You will, as Peter says, when Christ comes again, receive the unfading crown of glory. You may be abused, mistreated in ministry. It happens all the time, all around the world. 
but it's what God has called us to. So don't go into ministry if you just want to be popular. Don't go into ministry if you want to get rich. If God, if you can be happy doing anything else in this world other than ministry, go do it. But if God has called you, fulfill that calling. Fulfill that calling to be a gift to the church in that way with all integrity, with all humility, with all Christ-likeness. So God gives gifts to the church, some for a specific time, but some for all time, specifically evangelists and these shepherd teachers, these pastors. But God doesn't just give gifts to the church for its equipping. He also gives goals for the church, things to strive for, things to go after. Look at verses 12 and 13. Paul says, God gives these gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And there are here, I think, five goals for church growth that we can glean from these verses. First, in verse 12, believers are trained. Believers are trained. That's the first goal of, of any church striving for pursuing church growth is to train believers. This means specifically that the believers, those, those who are trusting in Jesus and have committed their lives to a local church and the other believers that are there, that they're made completely adequate for the work of ministry. Right. Lacking nothing. Everything you need to know for service, for ministry, you know, by the equipping of those that God has gifted to equip the church. Well, what's the work of ministry then that believers are to be equipped to do? Is it to have uh, fellowships and, and several potlucks right, a month? No. It's a work of ministry to to, I don't know, have fun carnivals in the parking lot twice a year. No. What's the work of ministry that God has called us to do, that Christ has prepared us for, that Christ died that we might be saved to, to work out? I think primarily we see it in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 20. Christ's last commands to the disciple before he ascends into heaven, right? He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's the work of ministry, to get the gospel out. Not to keep it in, but to get it out. To let it resound from these walls and in our lives and in our conversations. That we might at every turn also be like evangelists everywhere that we go. Making disciples. Bringing people into a new relationship with Christ. And then helping them to grow in their relationship with Christ. Right? As Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's the work of ministry that not pastors have been called to, but everyone has been called to. All of you, each one of you that is trusting in Jesus as Savior has this commission. You have this call on your life to be an evangelist, to be a disciple maker, to be a proclaimer of the gospel. And God has given gifts to the church like other gifted evangelists and shepherd teachers to help you to do that better and more confidently and with greater assurance that what you're doing is is right and doing it in the right way. Every church... And every believer is called to specifically this, whether it was the church 2000 years ago or the church today has been called to make, to mature and to multiply disciples, specifically that make new disciples, make new believers by proclaiming the gospel, calling people to make a decision for Christ, maturing those believers, teaching them, right? The importance of baptism, teaching them God's word and and how to apply it to their lives, how to study it rightly, how not to abuse God's word, but how to use it as a tool and as a mirror for our own lives. And then multiplying disciples, training disciples who will make disciples or making disciples who will make disciples. That's what every church and every generation in every context and on every continent has been called to do. And God has given gifts that we might do that. That's the first goal that we train believers. Second, second goal is the body being built. 
Okay, now the body being built, the body is the body of the church, right? The local church and also the global church, right? But the body would be built up and that this uh, bodybuilding exercise is dependent upon believers being trained and working out their training. So the body can't be built unless believers are trained. That's why training is the first thing. But the body builds itself up, is being built up as those who are trained are working out their training. So it's dependent upon believers being trained, but it's also a goal of the church. The goal is that they would grow spiritually, that the body of Christ, that this body, at First Baptist West Albuquerque, that we would grow spiritually and that the worldwide church also would increase in number and in spiritual maturity as well as people who previously did not know Christ, did not believe in Christ, come to faith in him. So the body is built up spiritually, but it's also built up numerically as new believers are brought in. The third goal is that unity would be reached. Here, the unity that Paul refers to, the unity that's to be experienced is unity in faith, which I think very simply means togetherness in the gospel. That there would not be anything between us that would break apart our fellowship in, in the most important matters of the gospel. Now, when you approach theological matters, there's a really helpful way to, to think about doing that. Uh, uh, Dr. Al Moeller, president of Southern uh, Baptist Seminary, I don't know if he coined this term, but he uses it often. It's where I got it from. He says, every time you approach a theological matter, approach it with uh, a view for theological triage. You know what triage is? It's what happens when you go to the emergency room. If you go into the emergency room and your heart is not beating and you are unresponsive, you go to the top of the list, regardless of, uh, of the you know, 85 people that have been waiting for six hours ahead of you. Right? Your case is the most important. If you go into the ER with your stubbed toe, you're going to be there for a few days. Okay? Waiting to see a doctor. Right? Because you are not as important in the emergency room. So when we, in the same way, when we look at theological matters, we have to look at them through a lens of theological triage. What are the most important things? What are the lesser important things? And there are three levels. There are first-tier issues. First-tier issues are the things of most importance. These are the things that we absolutely must have unity in faith uh, about and around. Things like the divinity and, and full humanity of Christ. Things like substitutionary atonement, which is that Jesus died in your place and in my place to take the penalty for your sin and for mine on the cross. Things like the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. That he wasn't just raised from the dead, a, a spiritual being or a spiritual force, but a literal, in a literal, physical, glorified body. Things like the, the literal, physical return of Christ at the end of time to judge all people, right? That is a matter of first importance, right? Then there are, th- th- there are others as well. Things like the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is, is one God, but exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There are a few others there, but, but the list of, of most essential things is relatively small. Then there are second-tier issues. These are things that, that like... So first-tier issues separate um, uh, real Christians from heretics, okay? Uh, real Christians from false Christians. People who get the gospel and people who don't, Okay? Uh, second tier issues are things that, that separate denominations, right? People who agree in the most important things, but disagree on lesser important things. For instance, baptism. As Baptists, we believe that baptism is for the believer, for the, um, not necessarily an adult, but for the person who is able to consciously and on their own profess faith in Jesus, that we baptize them as a, as a symbol, as, a, uh, as even a mini drama, if you will, of the change that is happening in them, that they have recognized that Christ has died for them and they're committing their life to him. But Presbyterians and, and others in the Reformed Church, um, who we agree with in, the, in most of the time, the most important things of the gospel, they disagree about baptism. And so we, we differ in denominations. Now, we agree in the gospel, which is good. 
And so there's some things that we can cooperate with Presbyterians and, uh, and others with, Lutherans with as well, but not necessarily in baptism. So we split over those things. We don't fight about them. We just know that we can, in good conscience, minister alongside. And then there are issues. Those are second-tier issues. And then there are issues uh, that are third-tier issues that are good for nothing but hearty, fruitful, and hopefully edifying conversation among believers of any denomination. Okay? Things like the chronology of the end times. Whether you're a premillennialist, an amillennialist, or postmillennialist, or a panmillennialist, you believe at the end it'll all just pan out, right? Um, or whether you're a millennial. We can, these are things that Christians have had hearty debate over for thousands of years. And they're not things that have split the church, they're not things that have split denominations, and they are not things that ever should split those things. And so we have hearty, fruitful, Iron sharpening iron kind of conversations about those things. So when you approach the gospel, and we think about the body being uh, built and unity in the faith being reached as about, we want unity in the most important things. Grace with others on those second tier issues, and then tons of grace on those third tier issues, right? Right? So believers are trained, the body is built, unity is reached. Fourth, fourth goal of church growth, godly church growth, is that knowledge of Christ is deepened. The knowledge of Christ that Paul refers to here is this Greek word epigenosis, which just means full and definite knowledge. Like you know the thing, you know the person, you know whatever it is that is there. That we would grow in that sort of definite knowledge of Jesus. The picture here that Paul is painting is one of individual believers united together in their common faith in Jesus in those most important issues, increasing and growing in their knowledge of Christ experientially, but also their knowledge of Christ scripturally. We don't just grow in Christ and our knowledge of him through praying regularly. We couple that with Bible study, right? And then we, we link that, we tie that to Bible study with others so that we might together grow in our knowledge of Christ, both spiritually and scripturally, experientially as well. Knowing Christ's church is not a mystical thing. Knowing Jesus is not, is not a thing that you have to go up to a mountaintop and spend, you know, months fasting over until you receive some sort of, I, I don't know, fantastic uh, kind of epiphany or whatever about who Jesus is. No, knowing Christ comes as a result of time spent in the study of God's word, which perfectly reveals Jesus to us. And it grows and it increases in time spent in prayer, speaking with God. And even and especially, I think, through the discipline of committing yourself to a group of other believers, like in a local church, who can help you and whom you can help in that pursuit of knowing Christ more. The fifth goal is that maturity would be attained. Maturity is attained. Maturity is what parents want for their children. Okay. We want our children to be independent, on their own, able to make important decisions without having to call us or ask for money. Right? We want maturity for our children. That's, that's the goal of parenting. But in the same way, uh, spiritual maturity is a good thing also. Spiritual maturity is a good thing for people to want. Not that we ever get to a place where we don't need Christ anymore, but we get to a place where, where we can feed ourselves uh, biblically if we need to. We can feed ourselves spiritually if we need to. That we know God's Word, we know how to study God's Word. We, we know we, we've practiced the practice of prayer in such a way that we can feed ourselves and feed our family spiritually from God's word on our own if need be. That's what we're all shooting for. The final goal of spiritual maturity is, is then, uh, according to Paul's standard, right, the fullness of the stature of Christ himself. You want to know when you're a fully mature Christian? When you look exactly like Jesus. We will never be done 
in these bodies, right? Growing in spiritual maturity until we measure up to the fullness of the stature of Christ, Paul says. That day will come in the resurrection, okay? Okay, but not until then. So there is work yet to be done in maturing in Christ. Note also this, that not just the last of these five goals, but all four, uh, all five of these goals are not things that will ever be completely attained or completely perfected in this life or in the ministry of any church. Rather, these are all goals that must constantly be strived toward, fought for, and pursued until Christ returns. These goals should be disciplines of our daily life, knowing that we need to pursue these things each and every day as individuals, but especially as the church. So then we look at these goals that God has given for the church as they grow, goals of church growth. We are then required, we must then make God's goals for church growth our goals for church growth. Yogi Berra once said, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up somewhere else. (laughs) But it's true. If you don't know where you're going, you'll end up somewhere else. Look, a church can set whatever kind of goals they want for church growth. A thousand members. A million dollar budget, right? Uh, 14 buildings and, and millions of dollars in, in physical assets, right? That's our goal for a church. This many people on a specific Sunday. The problem is we don't see any of those goals in Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that those things are bad. It doesn't mean that those things are unbiblical. It just means that those are not primary things. And those should not be primary goals for a church. Now, if a church sets God's goals as their goals for church growth, that the body would be built, that there'd be unity in the faith, that believers would be trained, right, that maturity would be pursued and so on. If we set those goals for our church and, and God so deems to gift us with a thousand members and a million dollar budget and, and uh, whatever, right, he leads us in that direction to do those things, then that's okay. But our goals don't ever change. The building never becomes a goal. The budget never becomes a goal. Right. Numbers of rear ends and seats doesn't ever become a goal. What is our goal? Well, the things that that God has said, the things that Christ has said, that we would be constantly, regularly being trained to build up the body spiritually, but also numerically by proclaiming the gospel, not by stealing sheep from other churches. Right. But by growing through evangelistic growth that we all might together be growing in the fullness of the stature of Christ. So there's five goals that we shoot for constantly. We know we're never going to attain them perfectly, but we pursue them with diligence in the power and in the the talents and in the gifting of the people that God has gifted for the church. And as we do those things rightly and humbly with a spirit of wanting to follow God, we then see the results of godly church growth. And God gives us goals that we can't ever attain in this body or in this lifetime or in the life of any, any particular church. But he, also, but he gives us results to kind of help us to see along the way to keep us moving in that direction, pursuing these, these goals. And he gives us three results. That as we use God's gifts, we're trained, we strive for these goals, we look forward to these things happening. And we should expect these things to happen. First, verse 14, the church is doctrinally anchored. Verse 14 says this, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, uh, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. The result of training in ministry, training for ministry, growth in the maturity of Christ, is that we are anchored in our faith and in our understanding of the truth. No longer will we be, as Paul says, tossed about by the waves and the wind of every doctrine that comes, by, by human cunning, by human sinful craftiness, 
by those who are deceitful and even self-deceived teachers. But rather, we are steadfastly grounded in the non-negotiable necessities of Christianity. Right? More than merely, though, weathering the storm of false teaching, of wrong doctrine, of bad theology. More than just weathering the storm of those things, the mature believer, being doctrinally anchored, will be able to perceive false teaching when it comes and even stand against it actively, right? Refuting it with the truth. So when you hear something that's bad or wrong or you read something, even if it's sold by Lifeway, that is bad or wrong, you can recognize that's bad, that's wrong, and I know from Scripture why. The church is doctrinally anchored. It is God's intention that we not just know and believe what is true, but that we are able to discern and actively work against that which is false. Secondly, second result, the church grows up in Christ. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Like the last five goals that we just mentioned earlier, the result of the church doing what it is called to do and created to do and gifted to do is maturity and growth into the likeness of her Savior. That each of us as individuals and as bodies of Christ would look more like Jesus each and every day. Christ is, as Paul says, the head of the church. Continuing to use this analogy of the body. Christ is the head. The head is where the brain is. Then the brain directs every action and every function, every operation of the body. A body without a head is dead. And Paul uses this analogy of Christ as head in Ephesians 1 and in 1 Corinthians 11 and in Ephesians 5 verse 23 as well. I encourage you to go look at those places this week. But Paul here mentions that Jesus as head Right? causes the church to grow up in Christ. He mentions that it happens in a very particular way. How is that? By speaking the truth in love. How do we grow up into Christ who is the head of the church? By speaking the truth in love. In contrast to the malicious and deceitful schemes of those who try to undermine the gospel with false teaching, Christians are called to, on the other hand, speak all truth in a heart and a spirit of love, as opposed to a heart or spirit of malice, as false teachers do, or a heart or spirit of self-gain. Right? We speak the truth self-sacrificially to one another so that growth in Christ might be the result. It's my guess, friend, that this will probably be the hardest thing for you to do in your life, speaking the truth in love. When, when another sinful human being says to you something that is just so off the wall. Maybe it's not even related to theology, but it's just hurtful. It's insulting, right? It's just a shot straight at your heart. Your response is not to respond in kind, not to return reviling with reviling, not to to pursue vengeance, but to speak truth in love. When you figure out how to do that, you call me. My office number is 899-0665. And you tell me how to do it, okay? It's hard. It is hard to speak the truth in love, but we're called to do it, and that's how we grow up into Christ who is the head. Why? Because Christ always spoke the truth in love. Look at, look at how Christ confronts sin and confronts opposition and confronts even persecution in his, in his human ministry. And you will see truth spoken in love. And you follow that example. Third, the third goal. So first, the church is doctrinally anchored. Second, or, or the re, third result, excuse me. First, the first result is that the church is doctrinally anchored. The second is the church grows up. It matures in Christ. But the third result is this, that the church is cooperatively magnifying Christ. 
that together as a body, we are glorifying Jesus, holding him high. With Christ as head, the body is properly ordered. Paul says in verse 16, we're to grow up into Christ who is the head from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Each and every part descending from the head. So starting with the eyes, nose, mouth, neck, shoulders, arms, torso, legs, feet. Each part is ordered and commanded by the head. And in the church, each and every one of us is ordered and commanded by Christ. But when we follow orders directly, right, or, or, or correctly, excuse me, we are so properly ordered then in the body of Christ and the whole body grows in maturity, both spiritually and in unity. We recognize that Christ is head and we follow his direction. We follow his teaching the way that we expect our legs to do what our brain is telling them to do. Right. The body works right. It works correctly. Whether you're big or whether you're small, whether you're strong or whether you're weak as an individual, if your body is listening to your brain, your body is functioning properly. And so whether you're a church that is large or small or old or young, if you are following Christ, who is the head and following his directions correctly, you're going to work out just fine. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you have a a building that can seat 3000. It doesn't matter if you have 14 services and three on Saturday night. It doesn't matter if you have a a budget, uh, uh, you know, bigger than NASA, which isn't hard to do anymore. It, It doesn't matter how many seats you're able to fill on a given day or for a particular event. What matters is that we work and function the way that God has created and called and gifted the church to work and to function. So what then is the result of every believer growing in the character of Christ, ordering themselves and working toward the goals that Christ has set? Do we all become like these Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of churches, like we're just big and strong with all sorts of resources, whatever? No, not all of us. Not all of us. Some of us are are Sammy Davis juniors. I don't don't know what that looks like in a church context, right? But we're not all, we're not all, you know, these big, buff, bulky, whatever, as churches, as a body that way. Some of us are, some of us are like me, which is not at all like Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? We're We're just doing what God has called us to do in the way that we've done it. We're growing in maturity. And as we do that, whether you're big or small, strong or weak, old or young, as a body, the result of that is that Christ is seen in the lives of that body, right? The lives of those people that make up that local church. And Christ is magnified in the world. So regardless what your body looks like as a church, not as individuals, but as a church, right? Whatever the body looks like, right? It must look like Christ. The character of that church must be that of Christ. And Christ gifts church, churches in different ways. Some churches he will gift with large buildings and large budgets that they might do much for the work of the gospel in the world. But God also gives small churches, small buildings with small budgets so that they can also proclaim the gospel of Christ in that world. Right? The world of the believers that are called there. So then as we see the results that we ought to be looking for, then for any church that is pursuing godly church growth, we need to, we must evaluate the growth of any church by God's standards for church growth. It's incredibly important to have a a standard unit of measurement. For those of you that have ever traveled outside of the United States, 
um, you are you walk into the metric world, right? The metrics, is, everything is in kilometers and uh, and meters and uh, liters and milliliters and uh, kilograms and not ounces or pounds or miles or whatever. And you have to do a serious adjustment to figure out a standard for that. If you're driving down the highway in, uh, let's say, as I've done before in South Africa, and the speed limit is 80 kilometers an hour, but you're following the miles per hour uh, gauge on 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 your car, you are grossly breaking the law and you deserve to go to prison. Um, I'm just kidding. Not really. But but you'll be you'll be flying down the road and wondering why everybody's driving so slow, because your standard of measurement is different. In the same way, we can we can create standards for measurement of church growth for ourselves. But if they're not Christ's, if they're not God's standards for measurement of church growth, we're constantly going to be out of whack. Constantly going to be out of whack. If we set our standards, the results of church growth, if, the, if what we expect, so if, if our goals are to have a bigger building and a bigger budget and more people and all of these things, right, none of which are anything that we've seen in Ephesians chapter 4, if those are our goals and the results that we have are the results of those goals, we have a bigger building, we have a bigger budget, we have more people, but we don't know if any of them are saved, we're not actually doing missions, we're not taking the gospel to other people, the people that are here on a particular Sunday or a given uh, Bible study, whatever the case might be, they don't know anything more about the gospel, they're not growing in Christ, they They look just as sinful on Monday as they did the Saturday before. And nothing has changed because of what we're doing on Sunday. It doesn't matter how many thousands of people we fill into a room. The results of church growth are not being accomplished. Of godly church growth. So so recognize the gifts that God has given to the church. Shepherds, teachers, evangelists. Right? Utilize those gifts. Let them equip you for the work of ministry. And as you do so, set your goals and even require that, that the gifts of people that God has given to the church require that, that their goals be God's goals for ministry. And then evaluate the life of your church and the ministry of your church by the results that God says we should evaluate them by. Is the church doctrinally anchored? Do we know what is true and what is not? Are we, are we easily swayed by false teaching in the world? Are we growing up into Christ? Are we, are we growing in spiritual maturity as we speak the truth in love? Is, is truthful, loving speech a characterizing mark of this or any church? Are we as a group, first and foremost, primarily seeking to magnify Christ, who is our head and our Savior? Those are the things we need to constantly evaluate ourselves by. That's the standard of church growth that we should seek to follow. And so in this year, maybe it's been your resolution to come to church more. Maybe it's been your resolution and and you're already a regular church member. You want to grow in Christ more. You want to help this church grow in Christ more. Do these things. Right? Let God's goals for church growth and for personal spiritual growth be your goals. Not something that somebody in some book said. Do, do, Do what God has called you to do. And then as a church together, let's commit to growing this church or any church that God may call us to, right? Growing a church biblically in a godly way that he might be glorified, that Christ might be, might be magnified, and that the gospel might go out from, from our body to the four corners of the world. 